Welcome to the podcast, Bringing Truth to Life, where we talk about what the scriptures say that can help you get unstuck from the thorny issues of life and encourage you to live the life you've been wanting to live with Christ. Our speaker today is Henry Clay, and we're in a series called A Man After God's Own Heart on the life of King David from the Old Testament. God called him a man after his own heart, but we see that he was far from perfect. What was it about this man that God liked so much? This series looks at David's environment, his experiences, and his responses to try to discover how we can live a life that brings delight to God's heart. Heavenly Father, we, we need a break from our feelings and our sorrows, our plans and activities. And we just want to step outside into your presence into the scripture and the word of God. We need to hear your voice. So speak to us today from the scriptures. Touch us once again, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. The title of what we're going to talk about today is The Hound of Heaven. And you've heard that term before. I think it's in a poem. The Hound of Heaven. And we're going to look at the events of 2 Samuel 12. And I have drawn you a little schematic of all the things that you have at one point in your life heard about this story, but just to remind you who is who and what is what. So we have David is the king in, in 2 Samuel 12. He has had this incident of infidelity with uh, a woman named Bathsheba who is married to a guy named Uriah who's in the army of Joab. Are you following me? And uh, Uriah wasn't just anybody. He wasn't just like uh, Joe Schmidt from Brooklyn. His name is listed in David's 30 mighty men. So in other words, out of the five or 600 people that would go around with David in the wilderness running from Saul, Uriah had been one of his best friends. So that's one of the things that makes this even more poignant. It wasn't just anybody. It was somebody. So anyway, David commits adultery with Bathsheba, and she becomes pregnant, and a baby is born, and then God sends the prophet Nathan to talk to David. So this whole thing in 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel 12, is the conversation between Nathan and David. Are you with me? So let's look uh, at these first 15 or so verses in 2 Samuel 12. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat his bread, drink of his cup, lie in his bosom, and was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, Surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold, because he did, he did this thing and had no compassion. Nathan then said to David, you are the man. That's probably a bad moment right there. 
Thus says the Lord God of Israel, It is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah, and if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You've taken his wife to be your wife, and you have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. Because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up, up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives from your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has taken away your sin, and you shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. So Nathan went to his house. Now we have no idea why God waited this long to talk to David about this. Uh, the child has been born, so it's been nine months we don't know why God didn't speak to David. And it's an interesting thing. David is, you know, uh, the writer of mo uh, at least half of the Psalms and is known for one of the most devoted uh, believers in the Scripture. And certainly a lot of our worship comes from the expressions of his heart to God. And yet there is no recorded instance of God appearing to David or speaking to David directly. So for those of you that have always wondered, well, if there is speaking in tongues or visions of angels, and, you know, I've never had those, so maybe I'm a second-class citizen. God's favorite guy in many ways, uh, God never did that. That God, he says it's more blessed to, of the, are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So don't necessarily think it's a disadvantage that you maybe haven't seen a vision or an angel or heard a voice from heaven. It's fine, and we would love it if and when that happens. But David didn't get it, and that did not mean that God loved him less. Now, Nathan comes, and David being the king, obviously it's not necessarily a safe thing to go and talk to the person who has all authority to kill you that uh, you think he's out of line. Uh, that's not bringing good news. So we don't know if God told Nathan to come up with this uh, little parable. We don't know if maybe it was an actual case that was being brought to David, that there really was a situation like that. It is possible. But here we have Nathan telling a story, presenting a case for judgment in order to get David to pass judgment on that situation and in so doing, passes judgment on himself. And he tells the story of this man, the rich man and the poor man. It's interesting, he, he really lays it on thick about this poor little lamb. You know, and, everybody, and particularly David, having been a shepherd, he had a soft spot for lambs, I'm sure. Probably, maybe he even remembered a couple of names. You know, I mean, it's like you, you who have had pets that were really, really special. It's like it, they're almost people. Or maybe for some people, they're more than people. 
And so you get this cute, cute little lamb. Maybe his name was Charlie, you know, and and uh, he they eat together. They they're in the same bed. Sounds a little unhygienic, but anyway, David's really just drawn into this situation, and he says, "This uh, little lamb was like a daughter to him." Now the word for daughter is uh, B-A-T or B-A-T-H, bat or bath. Does that sound like anything? Bath Sheba. He even gives a clue. He says she, she was almost like a bath or bat for him. And that sounds an awful lot like Uriah's little ewe lamb who was bath Sheba. And the rich man, it's not that he couldn't find uh, other sheep. He was unwilling to find other sheep. He didn't need to. He just abused his power and took that little lamb. Some say that the traveler that came to visit the rich man is a picture of lust, coming to knock on the door of that rich man's life. Someone said, opportunity, it has been said, knocks only once in many a year, but temptation thumps on all front doors day and night for years, that every one of us is visited by that traveler, and we are also tempted to do things that are evil. So he takes that poor man's lamb, and uh, so it says, David's anger burned greatly against him, and he says, surely that man... Uh, deserves to die. Now, in the law, it never says that. It never says, well, if you take someone else's little lamb, off with your head. It never says that. It just says you have to give them four lambs, fourfold restitution. So here, David, interestingly, the easier you get on your own sin, the harder you get on others for their sin. It's an odd kind of a dynamic. So David is more strict now than he might have been beforehand. He says he'll need to make fourfold restitution uh, because he had no compassion. And then Nathan says, you are the man. We're taught, you've just condemned yourself. With the judgment you judge others, you will be judged. And he says, I'm going to raise up evil against you. He says, David, you have despised me. Now, I don't think when David sinned and did what he did, I don't think he was thinking about that. And there are times when you and I have done things that, it, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, it was bad, but, but you didn't really have it under the category of now I'm going to do something that shows how much I despise God. But Nathan is putting it in its true light. It's true and sad light. So David then says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. That's the only line uh, in these 15 verses that David's got. He's, he's got, not, what else can he say? He, he doesn't justify it. He says, well, but Saul was worse. He just says, I, I've sinned. And Nathan says, well, okay, God has taken away your sin. You won't die, but the child will die. And as we know, he then fasts and prays, and the child dies anyway. And it says Nathan went to his house. Now, interestingly, 
This is in the book of 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Samuel, and then 1 and 2 Kings. That's all one relating of the, of the kingdoms of Israel. 1 and 2 Chronicles also covers the same period of history. Guess what? Chapters, the content of 2 Samuel 11 and 12 isn't in Chronicles. They skip right over the whole thing about Bathsheba, Nathan, everything, from one chapter, which is the fight with the Ammonites and besieging Rabbah. And then the very next chapter, it's over in the chapter after this, where it's more, more battles. And I think, wow. They say that First and Second Chronicles was written by the priests, and they had an emphasis on uh, what was going on with uh, the temple and the sacrifices and the priesthood. And also they were, I mean, you don't always bring up all sad, bad things. It doesn't mean that they're not true. It's just they're not always, if you don't have to bring it up, you don't bring it up. <laughs> but thankfully in 2 Samuel, it does tell us, well, this, this is sad, but it is true. This same story in a very abbreviated form is in the Quran, the Quran, as they say. In Surah chapter 38, it talks about David is there and two men break in and they say, and it's the rich man and the poor man, and the rich man's got 99 sheep, and he's told the other guy, he says, I think you ought to give me your little lamb. And the guy, because he felt like he couldn't say no, gave it to him, but they were feeling bad and wanted David to. Anyway, that's, it never says that David did anything wrong. In fact, when you read commentaries on that surah of the Quran, it says, isn't it terrible that the Jews made up this horrible story of David, Bathsheba, and sinning? How could they say that against one of the prophets of God, you know? And it's like, well, that's an interesting take on that. But anyway, so I want us to focus on four aspects that kind of four big ideas that come out of this passage when we think about how God is the hound of heaven, how he's searching for David, that David's sin separates us from God. So the first thing I want to notice is the law of the harvest. You reap what you sow. And that could be good news, and that could be bad news. Uh, it's good news if you do good things and you get good things. I mean, like, what would life be like if you did good things and always got bad things? I mean, you probably wouldn't be quite as motivated to do good things. I mean, isn't it Part of the great motivation to do what's right is it has good results. And one of the deterrents to doing bad is it usually doesn't go well. It's not good. So the law of the harvest, and David has, has, uh, ends up getting Uriah killed by putting him up in the front of the battle, talking Joab into doing it. So it's, it's almost as though David didn't actually do it. He just did it in a tricky kind of a way. So like, well, I didn't kill him. And I didn't ask Joab to kill him. And I didn't ask the enemy to kill him. I just kind of got him put over right where the fighting was the heaviest. Oh, how about that? He got killed. But God doesn't see it that way, does it? He sees right through that. So Uriah is killed. And what does David say about that rich man? He says he must restore to the poor man. What did he say? Fourfold. In David's life, then, what happened? The baby died. His son Amnon was killed by Absalom. Absalom was killed in the battle. 
Adonijah was killed. One, two, three, four. What David had said ends up happening. The law of the harvest. And sometimes people think, yeah, but he says your sin is taken away. What is this? He says sin always has bad results. And you should never think that that, but what about the grace of God, my friend? Listen to me. That is the grace of God. It is the grace of God that sowing good things brings good things, and sowing bad things brings bad things. But those are temporary consequences. God wipes away the eternal consequences by his grace. But that horrible harvest of evil, and each of us is to some degree still reaping results, bad results of bad decisions we've made. The law of the harvest. The second thing I want to notice is the heart disease. He says, you are the man. And what we see here in the life of David is we see that evil is not just evil. It affects you, apart from the consequences. I, I went to the dentist the other day. Unfortunately, they didn't have to do a lot, so they didn't give me any of that stuff, you know, that takes away the pain. But I tell you what, when they're really going to get in there and drill and do all that they do, you are so glad for whoever that guy was that invented Novocaine and whatever the other stuff is because it keep, takes away the pain. Now, they've done some studies on the disease of leprosy and realized it's, it's not a rotting of the extremities that they thought it was. It's a loss of feeling in the extremities. And so you can no longer protect yourself and you bang your finger, but it doesn't hurt. So you keep using that finger until finally it, it said, because you didn't protect it and cure it, it falls off. You forget to blink because it doesn't hurt because your eyes are dry, but you forget to blink. And so you go blind. So one of the effects of sin is insensitivity to sin. Sin is like leprosy. In one sense, we're all lepers. So the more you sin, the less you feel it. Harry Flint, I think, published a really bad pornographic magazine, and someone was interviewing him, and he was saying, well, yeah, I was raised Roman Catholic. And he says, do you ever go to confession? He says, why? I haven't done anything wrong. The worse you are, the less bad you feel. But it doesn't mean it's not bad. It means it is so bad that you have become a spiritual leper and you can't feel the evil that's caked all over you. The heart disease. So David was living his life. He'd killed a man. He'd taken another man's wife. And he's just going about his life. And thinking, well, I didn't, and I'm sure every sinner has ways of looking at things that it's like, well, yeah, yeah, I guess that's not good, but Saul was so much worse. And none of us have been as bad as we could be, and somehow that comforts us. And we'd rather think about that than we ha that we haven't been as good as we should have been. That heart disease, that insensitivity to be easier on ourselves and harder on others, to change the standards like we, 
we would say, there's the line. You should never cross that. That person, look, that's terrible. Until we cross the line. Say, so, well, maybe that's not really where the line was. I think we've been mistaken. I think the line is actually, oh, it's terrible that the person would cross that line. Working in the prison for one summer, with, or one year, uh, in 20 years ago, doing a Bible study, it was very interesting observing that, one, that none of the prisoners in there would admit that they'd done anything wrong, that it was a, either a lack of opportunity or... But they also had, in their mind, there's some people in prison, now they were the really bad ones. So it might be that the, the murderer is feeling like what the rapist, that's, and the rapist is thinking it's the child molester that's the really bad one. It's always very conveniently who you're not. Uh, and that's the heart disease. It's, follow me, it's not just the sin. It's the effect that sin has on us to make us insensitive to evil. The third thing to notice is holiness, God's holiness. 1 John was written by the same guy that wrote the Gospel of John. And he writes, for God so loved the world. So in, in, in 1 John chapter 1, he says, and this is the message that we've heard from him. We, we were with Jesus, we touched him, we saw him, we heard him. And he says, we, we came to a conclusion, this is the message. And, we, and you're thinking, oh, here comes another version of John 3.16 that God is love. He says, no, no, no. That's not the main message. The main message, the main thing we figured out about God is that God is light. He's light. In fact, if you know, don't understand that God is light, you'll never understand what that even means, that God is love. It's that God is hot holiness. It's almost horrific. It's, it's so intense. It's like, it's like, a nuclear bomb going off. It's so intense, his light. You see, David had covered things up. And it's almost as though, well, if, we, if it doesn't come to the light, it's almost as though it never happened. That's one of the reasons why I don't want it to come to light. It's only in his light that we realize how bad things really are. That's where we really realize our depravity. Uh, Joseph de Maestri said, I don't know what's in the heart of a scoundrel, but I do know what's in the heart of a good man, and it's horrible. It's horrible. God is light. God sent Nathan to David to shine the light, and it was horrible and painful, but what was really horrible was the sin, not the light not the light. Has God sent a Nathan to you, your spouse, your child, your pastor, to try to get through to you on something, and you're just beating them away, and you're all offended that they would say something like that? I was talking to one beloved family member who wanted to get closer to God, and I was talking to him about what separates us from God, which is sin. And that family member got very offended with me and says, now, are you saying I'm some horrible, awful sinner, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? And they got all mad at me. 
I said, now listen, you're the one that said you didn't feel close to God. <laughs> and I'm only talking to you about this because you wanted to get close to God. And they said, oh, okay, I'm sorry. We hate it when people point out what's wrong with us. God's holiness. And finally, the fourth, humility. How humiliating for David. I, I imagine Nathan didn't have a private audience with David. Yet if kings, you know, you'd always kind of be in a, probably a big room and you got all these people around. And here Nathan comes in, tells this story. David is, you know, feeling kingly and says, this man shouldn't even live. And he's got to do this and that. And, and Nathan in front of everybody says, it's you. It's like, this is so embarrassing. So humbling. How humiliating. And yet David says, you're right. He responds. He says, yeah. I've sinned against the Lord. I've sinned against the Lord. And this is what resulted in, uh, like we said, David, his lack of humility, his, his arrogance caused him to be so judgmental to, this, uh, to the rich man. Everybody likes to beat up on the rich man. But David notes the speck in the rich man's eye. He shouldn't have taken that little lamp. And God says, you've got a log in your own eye. Humble yourself to be willing to admit the truth about yourself. So as we think about the hound of heaven, think about this, how much God has been after you your whole life. And you say, why would he even care? I mean, is, is he like the policeman? One time I, I, I went through a red light. I realized right as I was going through it, you know, I was absent-minded as always. I'm sitting at the left turn lane, assuming it's going to give me a left turn hour. The lights turn green. And as I'm turning in front of a police car, I'm realizing, I guess none of those green ones were arrows. So I, I go about, you know, couple hundred feet, pull over and wait for him. And he comes with it, goes up, turns around, whoops around, gonna, thinks he's going to have to track me down there waiting for him. <laughs> you know, he was coming after me because I had broken the law. And sometimes we think of the hound of heaven, God is after me because I've been bad and he's, he's got to take care of that. But that's not why he's the hound of heaven. He's the hound of heaven because of his heart that we'll never understand and we can't explain. And all we can do is just talk about it and admire him and love him for it. But for some reason, he likes you and me. He wants you and me. We are his little you lamb that he, like you feel about your child or your grandchild, and they may be a bit of a trouble, but they are just so cute. And think about how God your whole life has been trying to draw near to you. He's done it through the law of the harvest. He's made sure that when good, you do good things, good things happen. When you do bad things, he's, he's helped you with cause and effect to set up a predictable world so that you can try to understand what is good and what is bad. The world is always trying to mix those things up. They say, well, this thing that everybody said is bad, oh, that's just those judgmental Christians. It's really good. And this other thing that they're saying is a good thing to do, oh, that's terrible. Look at all these bad results of that. 
They try to mix you up. But God has again and again with the law of the harvest tried to say, no, the good is good, the bad is bad. But that hasn't been enough. We've still strayed. So the second thing he does is he, he's given you a conscience and he tries to quicken that conscience. And that's helped somewhat. But we have heart disease and we keep killing that conscience. And the more you step on it, you do what's evil and you step on your conscience, you keep stepping on it and it doesn't work as well as it used to work. And there are things after a time that you think, well, it's not that bad. And you used to be horrified at it. But it's that heart disease, leprosy. But he's tried to, he's given you that conscience. That's part of the hound of heaven looking for you. The third thing with his holiness, he's confronted you. Because cause and effect wasn't enough help. Your conscience was enough. So he would send messengers and circumstances to you to say, wake up, wake up, you're on the wrong path. You have a bad attitude. Your heart is evil. You have despised me. He sent confrontation. And fourth, he sent Christ. That if you're humble enough, you'll receive him. You see, you thought that there was bad news, that you're a sinner and you need salvation, and that there's good news, God has sent Christ. What you didn't realize was, it wasn't just bad news, it was horrible news. It was terrible news. It's not just problems here, it's forever and ever. It's not just that you've been somewhat bad. He says, there, your condition is incurable. Your mouth, your motives. And then even the things that you do wrong, you find a way to say, well, then it's not that bad. And then you criticize everybody else. It's not just bad news, it's horrible news. And he says, and on the other side, it's not just good news, it's fantastic news. You mean you could take somebody like that and give them hope forever? What are you talking about? I thought I kind of had to just do the best I could and believe in you, and we'd sort of work out a deal. He says, oh, no, it's, uh, we're way beyond that. You, you, you are just a piece of dead meat, roadkill. I, I, you know, the cause and effect didn't do it for you. The, the conscience wasn't working. The confrontation, that wasn't working either. And on top of that, you're all proud about yourself. He says, the only hope for you is the gospel of Christ. We've got to take the very best person and do the very worst things to them to have any hope to cure your situation. But he says, we've done it. And all God needs from you is to respond in humility. Now, the proud person, what do they do? They say, oh, I've been so bad. I don't know if God can forgive me. You know where that's coming from pride. That's why you've got to take that step over into humility. And when your conscience says, oh, yeah, you've been bad and you've done this, oh, so, oh, it's much worse than that. I'm sure if I didn't have the leprosy, uh, I'd realize how bad it really was. That's real, I'm really over here. I'm, I'm much worse than that. But God's love is much greater than that. It is so great. And this is why it takes all eternity to sing about God. They're not singing about, oh, yeah, you've been so bad. You've been so bad. So God has been so good. He's been so good. He's been so good. So when your conscience is quickened, when you're confronted with your sin, develop the 
instinct and the reflex to not try to justify it, excuse it, compare yourself with others. Well, at least uh, Sydney's a little bit worse in this area, so I'm not feeling quite so bad about myself. You know, says no. Let yourself listen to me. Let yourself feel bad about sin. It is bad. It's horrible. It crucified Jesus. There's no excuse for it. You have despised the Lord. It's only as you sit and really let it hit you that then you can be ready for the gospel. That's the person who the gospel's for. I've got no excuse. Like David says, I've sinned against the Lord. I got nothing else to say. I got nothing. And God says, okay, now we can talk. He says, have I got good news for you? And it's just for people like you that have totally given up on trying to say, well, I'm, I'm not as bad as I could have been, but I've, I've really tried, you know, and I've helped people, and I know it's not perfect, but he says, no, you're still not there. You're still a leper in your sin. He says, feel bad about yourself so that you can feel good about God and you can forget about yourself. It's not about you. It's how great he is. And that's the hound of heaven through consequences, through conscience, through confrontation, and through Christ. A God of love has been looking for you your whole life. Will you let yourself be found? He wants you to be his little you lamb. Not because of how good you are, how good he is. Praise God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. It's so easy to read David's story and says, boy, he was a bad boy. Lord, it's me. It's me. I am the man. I am the person who has sinned against God, who has despised the Holy One, who's run past consequences and who's run past conscience, trampling on it, who's blown off confrontation and then tried to be proud about it and say, well, it's not that bad. Lord, it is that bad, and I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Tell God right now you're sorry. Tell him you're sorry. And open up your heart now for Christ. This is the gospel. This is salvation. Lord, please come into my heart right now by faith. Wash me, cleanse me, help me to receive you to draw near to you by faith as you overcome my sin. Thank you for being so persevering with me, hound of heaven. I bow to worship you, and I celebrate you forever and ever. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us on Bringing Truth to Life. If the message has encouraged you, please subscribe and give us a review. This helps more people find our podcast. We hope you'll join us again for the next podcast of Bringing Truth to Life.